This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hi there, I'm Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz, and welcome to episode 54, where, well, I guess this isn't going to be a very dungeon mastery of a topic that I'm going to talk about. No, I'm going to take a hard turn and head up towards the sky, far across the universe, far, far away amongst the stars. This episode, I'm going to touch on classic traveler and OD&D, and how I'm finding so many similarities between the two sets of little books that drove each game. I'm also going to answer some great call-ins, so I hope you'll stick around, strap into your vipers, and wait for Core Command to tell you to launch when ready. <laughs> so over the past couple of weeks, I've moved from a thought exercise into actually planning out a campaign using the 1977 original version of Classic Traveler. Now, I don't want to assume you know about Traveler, but I think a good way to describe it succinctly is that Traveler is the D&D of science fiction role-playing. It's the first game that really caught on, and it's the game that most people will encounter when they get into that genre. It's also the very first game that, as a young teenager, I ordered by mail order, and I read it voraciously when I got that little black box in the mail with three little black books. Unfortunately, as... Since this was the late 70s, early 80s, I never got a chance to play it because all of my friends wanted to play this infamous game called Dungeons & Dragons that their parents were all upset about. And of course, you know, once the parents forbid something, what did the kids want to do? Get into that very thing. And that's what happened. So for the 40 years since, that game has had space in my brain and I've never been able to really get into it until now. Um, recently, I've been diving into Traveler to relearn it because I think I've got an opportunity to perhaps run a game in a setting that I'm really interested in. And I got to tell you, you know, where I'm coming from right now is that it is as much a toolkit and a system that is a framework just like OD&D is. You know, for a game that was released in the 70s, I shouldn't be surprised at this, but I think I'd always kind of in my head associated Traveler with the implied setting that's really dominant in the later versions and in the more modern editions of the, of the game. But this system in these three little books is going to allow me to run games in a Battlestar Galactica universe. And I think quite easily you could end up running similar games in Star Trek, in Star Wars, or pretty much any other sci-fi universe that you can come up with. I'm surprisingly finding that this is such an open-ended, open-approachable game. It could easily... I think accommodate any sort of game, much like OD&D could really accommodate any sort of game. And I think that's because of three things. The first thing is that Traveler stresses an approach where the referee discusses the situation that the players are in. They come up with options on how they're going to address the situation. The referee uses their own knowledge of Traveler and any guidance that might be available in Traveler to help them decide how to adjudicate this uh, situation. And then they do so. And then they let the players know what happened and what's going to be the next situation. Really 
very similar to the kind of approach that OD&D gives you in its three little brown books. There's no specific mechanic that has to be used for every single situation. There's no one rule for them all. You know, there's options there that are available. You know, certainly, you know, Traveler gives you some ideas. Here's how you interact with a computer. Here's how you pilot a spacecraft. Here's how you shoot a weapon. But at the same time, Traveler goes out of its way to stress that these are examples and the referee should feel free to do the things they think are correct. And I'm going to quote from the, um, the third book, and this is from the 1977 versions. It is impossible for any table of information to cover all aspects of every potential situation, and the above listings of skills is by no means complete in its coverage of the effects of skills. This is where the referee becomes an important part of the game process. The above listings of skills and game effects must necessarily be taken as a guide and followed, altered, or ignored as the actual situation dictates. The referee may feel it is necessary to create his own throws in DMs to govern action, and may or may not make such information generally available to the players. In order to be consistent, and a consistent universe makes the game both fun and interesting, the referee has a responsibility to record the throws in DMs they create, and to note, perhaps by penciling in, any throws they alter from those given in the books. I mean, this is so much of an OD&D approach, a come up with an approach and make it part of your campaign kind of thing. And I got to tell you, it really flies in the face of a lot of traveler material that I've encountered or the traveler community that I've ran into since. You know, what I hear now is about this implied setting, which is what they call the Third Imperium and all of the lore wrapped around that. You know, it's very complex. It's very spelled out. You know, very, I guess the word that comes to mind, rigid. Does this sound familiar to perhaps how O or how OD&D, you know, morphed into AD&D and third edition and so on with each subsequent edition spelling out more and more and, you know, more complexity and more features and more skills and more this and that. But yet you take a simple game and it's saying very simply, hey, you need something? Come up with it on your own. The second reason why I feel very comfortable that Traveler is much like OD&D is that the personal combat is abstract. <laughs> In fact, I think it's even more abstract than OD&D would be. The combat system in Traveler is meant to be very fast, very furious, resolve very quickly. And in fact, in some ways, I, I get the feeling that the main goal of Traveler combat isn't to focus on what happens during the combat, but rather the aftermath. Who's injured? Who's unconscious? What do we do now? Or who? We avoided that large group of heavily armed pirates. Now what do we do? You know, the combat is open-ended enough that the referee can easily adjust things based on what the players want to do. Take, for instance, something like cover and concealment. You know, oh crap, I'm getting shot at by someone with an auto rifle. I want to duck behind this rock here. There's no specific rule for that in Traveler Combat. So the referee may look at it and go, eh, you know, 2d6, a minus 2 is a significant thing. Oh, you're really hunkering down and trying hard not to be seen at all? I'll give you a minus 4 on, on that attack against you. 
it's that open-ended and it gives the referee the ability to feel out what's appropriate for their universe. You know, when I think about how OD&D combat plays out, whether I'm using a chainmail-like approach or the more, you know, the alternative D20 approach, which is what everything uses now, the the combat in OD&D and Traveler both flow very fast and it feels very similar. You know, we're describing these abstract things that happen very quickly so that we can resolve the situation and move on. You know, um, it, what's interesting is, is as I've been doing this in OD&D, you know, a, a much more, yeah, we're going to talk about the combat. Yes, we're going to throw dice. Yes, we're going to talk about wounds. But it's not necessarily the strike-by-strike be-all, end-all. And I find that the players themselves are starting to emulate that, think about that, and describe what they're doing in that aspect. And I think that, you know, the two very much are very similar in how I expect Traveler Combat's going to go. The third thing that I find that Traveler is similar to OD&D on is it's less of a mechanical system that's been built around your attributes and skills and more about how your character doing the things that they can do and using these attributes and skills more as descriptors. You know, OD&D doesn't stress bonuses or penalties around the uh, around their attributes. They, they give some general guidance. They talk about a, a few things that may modify. They talk about how these will improve your, you know, experience point bonuses. But by and large, attributes are just there, almost like descriptions. And Traveler is very much in that vein. Now, Traveler does have a little bit of a um, guidance on how you can use the attributes for some things. It does influence a little bit about how combat can play out. Um, and certainly the things that you're an expert in and traveler can go into helping you get through situations, but it really is left up to the referee on how, when, and if they apply. I mean, the, the quote I read earlier, the referee may feel it's necessary to create his own throws. All of this that we've given you above is just guidance, take it or not. And I think that that's very OD&D-esque in how the guidance is more meant to assist you rather than constrain you and make you, you know, basically run your game by it. I gave an example on Mastodon earlier today on how I may interpret a situation. So let's take this uh, made up, made up uh, scenario. So got a party. They're scavenging for parts. They've taken their spaceship, uh, their Battlestar Galactica Raptor, over to a wreck. And while they're in that wreck, the Raptor's been detected by a Cylon Raider that happens to be patrolling the debris field that the party is in. It's intending on launching missiles at any enemy craft that it encounters. So, you know, thinking about this, I figure this situation is somewhat difficult. How is the party going to deal with the fact that they are meters away from their Raptor, knee-deep in the wreckage of a starship's drive? So there's a chance for failure, and some interesting things may happen. So dice are probably going to be thrown, and in my head I've got kind of a mental idea of what value that would be. So I say to the players, okay, you're in the Rex engine compartment, your comm goes off. The Raptors detected a Cylon Raider. That Raider's trying to get a lock on the ship. What are you going to do? And so the players are going to talk about it. 
they're going to come up with, you know, whatever plans they can come up with. And let's say that they decide, hey, we want to get the Raptor deeper into the Rex cargo hold so that the Cylon will be full. You know, it's not really detecting a Raptor. It's just detecting some wreckage and there's nothing really there. Don't see us. And one of the players happens to have expertise in what, what's known as ship boats, small spacecraft, and electronics. So they feel that the combination of expertise in those two areas would allow them to use their communicator to somehow manipulate the Raptor's controls remotely. Well, that's reasonable. You know, and there's not really any guidance in Traveler on remote controlling spacecraft, so let's see, you got an expertise of two in ship's boat and one in electronics, you know, on 2d6, I think a plus two is, is, is a good number to bump it by. So they need a throw of six plus. They roll a seven. Seven plus two is nine. That's a pretty good success. So I'm going to describe how the Raptor bumps and thumps its way deeper into the cargo hold among the wreckage. Cylon isn't able to get a lock. It, you know, scans in circles for a while, but eventually it just it's been fooled enough that it moves off and it goes back onto his patrol. And I'm sure there'll be some big sighs from players when, when this result happens. You know, and here again, just like OD&D, we don't have to get pulled into a lot of mechanics. We don't have to have explicit rules to cover these situations. I have a discussion with the players. What are you going to do? They come up with some suggestions. I decide what's reasonable or not, and it feels right to me. And we move on. You know, I, I feel like after diving into the 1977 Traveler, I'm really prepared to run it because I'm comfortable with framework games like OD&D. And I don't know, maybe it's a shared mindset. Maybe it's a shared DNA with a lot of the games had in the 70s, where the referee is as much of the part of the rules creation as they are about adjudicating the results from those rules. I just feel like this lends itself to a very intimate and flowing style of play. You know, it's kind of funny, I hear everybody talking about modern games being so narrative, but I kind of feel like that OD&D and Classic Traveler are very narrative as well, because we're having this discussion, we're figuring out how we're going to get through things, maybe a roll or two here and there to figure out what happens, and we move on. And to me, that feels just as narrative as any modern game that I've heard about. I don't know, it feels right to me. So anyway, these are the three points I wanted to make about my foray into Traveler land. The campaign setting that I'm sketching out is a take on Battlestar Galactica. And of course, I'm going to steal liberally from both the 78 original series and the 2003 remake. There's just so much good material to work from for there. I've proposed a session of this uh, setting and game at Gamehole Con in October. So we'll see what happens. I'm going to be running some play tests on that in uh, June and July, and so I'll keep you posted on how things go, on how I'm finally going to get to play a game that I've waited to play for 45 years. All right, now for the call-ins. Uh -huh. 
First up, we're going to finish answering Daniel of Bandit Keeps podcast, The Media Empire, his call-in from a couple of weeks back. He had called in after episode 52, but because I took so much time last episode answering his question about timekeeping across multiple groups in the same world, I ended up dividing up his call-in, and I played the second part last episode. So here's the first part of Daniel's call-in. Hey, this is Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Just finished listening to your last episode Lots of great stuff to unpack there. I, I know we've been chatting and I told you that I'm watching people play Ultima <laughs> on YouTube now. So my next step is to actually play. But I love the idea of taking a large space and breaking it up into smaller sections, right? Especially if you're using like the, the stuff from Strategic Review and from the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Some of those rooms can be really big too. So I think, <laughs> you know, I, I've basically been drawing the rooms to suit the kind of what's going on in the space each time. I've got a little bit of a different approach, but I, I love that like you're making that work with the sub-dungeons, if you will, in in between. I don't even know if you call it sub-dungeon, but the sub-dungeon levels that are also themed is very cool, right? Very kind of classic. You know, I feel like with my dungeon, I'm probably going to, at some point, turn around. What I'm probably going to do is as I start running it, I will start adding extra stuff to it. Like right now, I'm just going super bare bones until I get people in there. And then I think I'll probably start uh, adding some more cool stuff because uh, super inspirational, everything you've been doing. And man, that play-by-post, that's amazing for all that time you... You know, I I, I always say I want to do play-by-posts. I just... I'm just not... Uh, I don't know. I just don't get it, maybe. I, I don't mean that like as I don't get it as I don't know why it would be fun, but I just don't... The rhythm of it, I haven't got it. Maybe it's just something you have to take over time and do it. Um, it sounds like being really organized is important. And I would love to hear more episodes about that. I know you've talked about it before when you've mentioned how you have multiple campaigns like early, early on. Uh, I think possibly when you were talking about wargaming. Uh, you, you probably remember better than I do. But uh, those those first episodes I listened to you about the using, you know, the the wargaming with the AD&D. That was when I first found your podcast. But. Daniel, thanks for those uh, comments and questions and observations. You know, I think the newer versions of... Dungeons and Dragons do a really neat job of promoting the idea of interactive spaces, of spaces, you know, that are like multiple elevations or have features that you can use during combat. At least it's been my observation that they do that much better than a lot of the modules and examples we had from the older versions. I I think sometimes that that's an element that gets lost in the random dungeon generators and the dungeon cards that I have is this idea that you can take these spaces and do a lot of things with them. Um, So for the larger rooms, yep, I rolled dice to see which Ultima dungeon map I would use. Um, I then kind of took inspiration from the layout of that Ultima dungeon level and I sketched out and broke up the larger room into that and you know what it ended up working out really well both for the inspiration of what that room had or what that dungeon level rather had in it uh, originally and on how it would play out in making this large space feel like a much tighter more um, purpose-driven or something interesting versus just you know a large rectangular room that has some columns in it. Your point about adjusting during play, um, I found that as I go, I'm reinterpreting or adding in some bits. Now, so far, the players haven't delved very deep into my uh, Dungeon 23 dungeon. They've encountered some of the weirdness, but to be honest, it's been kind of hard. We're only playing two hours or so 
um, every other week. So it hasn't quite allowed them to dive in pretty deep. They've probably seen about a quarter or less of the first level. But I'm definitely with you that as they go, and as I've created more of the lower levels of the, my dungeon and gotten an idea of what this is all about, it's definitely going to inform how I present some parts of the upper levels. And I've also made backup copies of my notebook, um, you know, scanned it in from the notebook, and I print out those scans, and I make notes and scratches and edits and updates to that as we go. And probably somewhere here, after I get done all with Dungeon 23, I'm going to go back and probably make a master document of it that will have some of these later thoughts in it. Um, going back to play-by-posts. So you were talking about getting into the how play-by-post works. I found that playing in play-by-post games and getting a sense of what works or what doesn't really helped me to kind of develop my style. Um, and even then, I learn more and I change, especially because the players themselves may change what they're interested in. You know, for a while they may be into, you know, a really in-depth discussion to have some role-playing, and other times they may be, may be more matter-of-fact of, hey, you know, we want to move on, let's get on with this thing. Thanks, Dan, for your call-in, and I'm glad you're enjoying the back catalog. Next up is Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Hey, Jason here. Just want to say I really enjoyed episode 53. Great job describing and explaining the use of calendars and time tracking for multiple campaigns. I also want to thank you for pointing out that table from Jeff Rents. Uh, I, I went and picked that up, and it's still there posted on his blog, so it's easy for everybody to find if they just type the name of the table in. That blog entry pops right up, which is wonderful. Um I've heard of that, and I've seen other variations. I, I don't know if that's the original one. It might be, looking at the date. Um, but it's interesting, because I, I haven't read all of his old blog posts, so I'd, I may go through and read some more of those, because there's some interesting stuff in there. Thank you much for all that you do, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks for your call in, Jason. The table that Jason is talking about is one I mentioned in episode 53, the Triple Secret Random Dungeon Fate Chart of Very Probable Doom. And yep, if you look that up on Google, it'll take you right to that post. That's a chart that I've had to use in the past, but only very sparingly. The players seem to be very worried about some of the option it provides, such as appearing naked minus all your equipment and treasure at the gates of town. Or worse fates. You know... You were talking about going back and looking at some of the older posts. There really is a goldmine of D&D material from, and especially with the OSR, from the blogging period of about 2006 to about 2012 when Google Plus really took over. And, you know, I think a lot of that material has just been lost in the general churn of digital content. You know, that new content takes the spotlight away and the older stuff ends up kind of getting lost and forgotten into the... Uh, archive.org, but I know that as I've ran into things, I've tried to keep a document of some of the inspirational posts that have really helped me, and I've done that a lot in my own blog, and sometimes I'll go back and go through some of those older posts of my own just to see if, oh, did did I have any ideas on this, you know, and, and, and try and pick up some of those great posts from the past, but I mean, there's so much 
totally awesome creativity out there that, that that's free. It's really mind-boggling and kind of cool at the same time that there's so much great stuff out there and all we got to do is find it. Thanks for the comments, Jason. Next up is Joe from Decahedron RPG Podcast. I don't believe Joe's called into this show before, so welcome. I'll put a link to Joe's podcast in the show notes along with the rest of my call-ins. Hey, Chicago Wiz. This is Joe from the Decahedron RPG Cast. It was great exchanging emails with you and find out that you live less than a mile away from my old house when I lived in the Chicago land area. That is just wild. What a small world it is, although I wouldn't want to vacuum it. Uh, that's a Stephen Wright joke. Anyway, I listened to your most recent episode, and it gave me two questions I wanted to ask you about, or maybe a question and a comment. One, you said that a game always uh, starts and ends in town. I have done this before. I like to run open games, and it's just so much easier if you always assume that everything starts and ends in town. So what I do, if they you know, lose track of time or if we're just running out of time for the night, they didn't leave in time, I give them a saving throw to see if they make it back. And each person makes their own save and either they make it or they don't. I don't tell them what happens if they don't because the other players might want to launch a rescue mission. And, you know, sometimes you just don't know. But in the back of my mind, they've always either been captured or they're lost or whatever. And there's probably a chance that they can be cap uh, rescued. If not, at least they can be recovered. The other thing you talked about is when you're playing the multiple groups, you know, if one gets ahead on time on the session, the, the next time the one meets, they have downtime until that time. And the question I have based on that is, do you charge expenses? to the players. It's a thing in OD&D where it's based on the number of experience points you have. Percentage of that is your monthly expenses every month. But I don't know if that made its way into AD or not. And I was just curious if you do anything like that. I always thought that GURPS, when I first started playing GURPS, had a neat system about handling downtime and how much it was expense, study, socializing, and you know expenses and a job because GURPS assumes that you have a job. But anyway, I was just wondering how you handled that. Thanks for the show. It's a great show. Keep up the great work. Bye. Thanks for the call in, Joe. You know, that's a really great approach to handling things if players don't come back to town. Um, the Dungeon Fate chart works kind of similarly. It's kind of like a, a saving throw based on the level that you had descended to and how uh, strong of a character you are. And yeah, in this chart, there are situations where indeed the players may need to mount a rescue. You know, one of my campaign's better side quests, side side quests, side quests was actually to rescue a player who had used one of the blogging uh, carousing charts and ended up needing to be rescued because they had been turned into a swine by an insulted witch and kept as a pet. It, it was so much fun. And actually, um, one of the most popular bard songs in the area, according to lore, is the story of the elven thief who was a pig. And no, I'm not going to sing that song, even though I actually made lyrics for it. Well, I'm not going to sing it for free anyway. Um... You're asking about how I deal with expenses, and that's a great question, and that probably could be in uh, an episode of its own as well. In the past, I've generally hand-waved a lot of the expenses because the original two groups that were kind of, you know, 
jumping along the timeline along each other, they were low level and they were already so poor and they didn't want to pile onto them. They were already getting taxed by um, all of the treasure that they brought into town. The town guards were taxing them and they came up with so many elaborate ways of getting around that that it ended up being a pain in the butt. So I just got rid of it. Now, I will add that Joe wrote in later that he had found the AD&D provided mechanic for downtime expenses. And, you know, if you're playing a Greyhawk uh, setting or a Greyhawk-like setting, it comes out to about 100 gold per level per month, plus if you have any stronghold expenses. My campaign's a little different. Um, the average laborer in my campaign makes approximately 175 gold a year, so 100 gold a month sounds kind of expensive. I'll probably come up with something maybe a little later that scales to that, but for right now, I haven't really done much with it. Now, some players maintain shrines and temples and have expenses like hired specialists and whatnot, and those are expenses that we do indeed take care of. Um, the costs, of course, are a little bit different in my campaign because of that difference in the uh, expectation as versus the implied AD&D setting, but um, yeah, we do take care of that. That's a great question, and thanks, Joe, and maybe I'll talk about it a little more in a future topic. Well, everyone, that's it for this episode. Till next time, keep fleeing that Cylon tyranny, and game on.